The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome back to our ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we are in chapter 5. So if you would be so kind as to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, we're going to go ahead and read through the first 12 verses of this chapter. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Romans chapter 5 we noted last week is, in many ways, a transition point in this epistle. Um, at this point, Paul begins to move into a new topic. In chapter 1, he had been talking about the problem that afflicts mankind, that is the wrath of God, the judgment of God that is being poured out on those who have suppressed the truth. In chapter 2, he explains that our only hope of deliverance is if we can have peace with God, but that peace is not something that you and I can obtain by human effort or by works of the law. This peace only comes to us when God chooses to make peace with us by giving an offering of his son. And it is this offering, and this is what chapters 3 and 4 are all about, is an offering that is received, the benefits of which are received by faith, by faith alone. And that's what Paul has been talking about. This is the great doctrine Martin Luther said of the standing church, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. This message that we are saved by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor, which is received by faith alone. 
apart from all human effort and all works of the law. Now, when you get to chapter 5, what Paul is going to do is he's going to talk about the benefits of this great salvation. He's going to talk about the benefits of justification by grace through faith. And he said there are a number of benefits. We looked at some of them last week. The first benefit, and in many respects the most important benefit, is that we now have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Up to this point, we have been enemies of God. We have been in conflict with God. We've been at enmity with God. But God has made peace with us through the sacrifice of his son, who was the full, perfect, and atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And we receive the benefits of his sacrifice by faith. And when that happens, we're told that we now have peace with God. We're no longer in conflict with him. We pass from being his enemies to being like Abraham, his friends. We become friends with God. That's the great benefit of this great salvation, which was received by faith. But there is another benefit. We not only have peace with God, but once you have the peace with God, you can then begin to experience and enjoy the peace of God. That peace which passes human understanding, that peace which comes from knowing that you are now in a right relationship with God and there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God. Now that's what Paul's going to get to in Romans chapter 8. But he's giving us just a taste of that here in chapter 5. In chapter 8, you know that great pinnacle of the epistle to the Romans where Paul says, what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through all of those things that might possibly, and then he gets to the end and he said, no, I say nothing. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reason for that is now we have peace with God. We have peace with God. And when you have peace with God, you can experience that peace of God knowing that nothing, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, not even you yourself. See, that's the wonderful thing. Not even you can separate you from the love of Christ once you are justified by faith. Well, when you have that kind of peace, then you also have confidence. Confidence that God is going to use everything. Every circumstance in your life, ultimately, for your good. And what is your ultimate good? To be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So even suffering, he says, is something that we can rejoice in. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that God is at work in our sufferings. What is he at work to do? Well, first of all, he says, our suffering will produce endurance. And endurance will produce character. That is the character of Christ. And that character will produce hope. And that hope will not put us to shame. Some translations say that hope will guarantee that we will not be ashamed. That is to say, we're not ashamed to go out and speak of Christ and witness to Christ because we know that God is at work in our lives. And then Paul sort of tops all of that off, that good news, that confidence, that hope that we have in Christ when he says we know that this is a fact because, verse 6, while we were still weak, 
at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. His point is that most of us are not willing to give our lives for another person. We might possibly, he says, dare to die for a righteous person. But who's going to die for an evil person, for a wicked person? And yet he said that is exactly what God has done for us. He says in verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that is to say while we were still enemies, not after we've been reconciled, but prior to being reconciled, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by faith, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If Jesus Christ was sent to die for you, even when you were lost in your sin, even when you were still waging a war against God, if he did it then, now that you've been reconciled to him, now that you are at peace with God, don't you think God is now going to give you the very best that he has? If he loved you that much, even while you were an enemy, how much do you think he's going to love you now that you're his friend? So that's the great hope that Paul is giving us here in Romans chapter 5. Now that we have been transferred from one status to a new status. Now, justification is a legal term, and that's the way Paul uses it here. We have been transferred. We have a prisoner exchange, if you will, has taken place. You know, it's really interesting. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, there's that point. I said it was one of the, some of the most chilling words in all of Scripture where we're told that man suppressed the truth about God, wanted to do his own way, go his own way, and finally God, we're told, handed them over. Remember that? Handed them over to do what ought not to be done. Handed them over to do it their own way. The worst words you can ever hear from God is do it your own way. Because God will let you do it your own way, and I guarantee you the results will not be pretty. But now we have been bought back. We have been purchased. We were handed over to do our own thing. We got to the bottom of that downward spiral. But then God, when all looked lost, intervened and purchased us, bought us back from that slavery to sin and death. So we have transferred from the realm of Satan to the realm of Christ, from the realm of death to the realm of life. The legal transaction, transaction, we are declared righteous. But it raises a question. Is that all there is to salvation? Just to be made right with God. Is, is that what it's really all about. You know, that's what many people think. I think when it comes to salvation, the essence of salvation is being able to go to heaven when you die. That's the reason you want. You're at war with God, and you, you can't go to heaven at your war with God. You're under the wrath of God. You no longer want to be under the wrath of God. You want to have peace with God so that when you die, you can go to be with him in that place where there's no more sorrow, no more grief, no more sighing, but life everlasting in that place where God's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes and everything's going to be hunky-dory. It's your opportunity to escape the late great planet Earth. That's what many people think. That's what, if you ask many people today, even many Christians, 
and you say, what is salvation? They're probably going to tell you salvation is being able to go to heaven when you die. But I want you to understand, and Paul begins this transitional section of Romans by making it very clear, that that is not the essence of salvation. It's a benefit of salvation, but that's not the heart of salvation. Paul rejoiced in the fact that he was going to go to be with the Lord. Over the past several weeks in church, we have been having readings from 2 Timothy. And uh, if you've been in church, you know that's the last letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it while he was imprisoned in Rome. He'd been in prison before. The first time he was in prison, he was under house arrest, and he was eventually released. This time, there's a great persecution taking place in the world. The emperor Nero was blaming Christians for the destruction of Rome. A great fire had swept through the imperial capital and destroyed large portions of the city, except for one little section, a ghetto, where, ironically, Christians lived. And, you know, even politicians in those days had to have a scapegoat. And so Nero made the Christians the scapegoat. The only reason that that section of the city survived when everything else was destroyed is because those are the people that started the fire. And so this great persecution of Christians erupted during the reign of Nero. And Paul, being a leader in the church, was arrested, thrown into a place called the Mamertine Jail, which was really an old cistern, just a, an abandoned well, if you will. And he was left there to rot until he would eventually be executed on the Appian Way going out of Rome. And when he wrote that letter to Timothy, that second letter to Timothy, he knew his time was coming to the end. The lesson from this past Sunday is where he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. And yet in that same section, Paul says, but I'm not afraid. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. And now there's stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will give me on that day. That, yes, he looked forward to that great salvation, that, that future where there's no more persecution, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more death. But if you were to say to Paul, is that salvation? Paul would say, no, that's just the benefit of salvation. Paul was sometimes torn between whether he should depart and be with the Lord or whether he should remain here and continue to be fruitful in ministry. If salvation, if the whole goal was to get out of this life and get to Christ, Paul would not have been torn around. So what is the essence of salvation? Well, it's what Paul talks about here when he speaks of being saved in the life of Christ. Look at verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The ESV says, and that's the translation I'm using, we shall be saved by his life. Anybody out there reading from the New International Version? What does it say? Not by his life, but that you've right. Okay, so the New American Standard Version says that. Somebody said the New International Version says through his life. So through his life or by his life. Actually, that is not the best translation of that verse. 
The Greek literally says, we shall be saved in his life. Now, that is an important distinction, I think. Not that the other translations are necessarily wrong. Are we saved by the life of Christ and by his death? Of course we are. Are we saved through the life of Christ, through his death? Of course we are. But what the Greek is actually saying here is something which is subtle in its difference, but nevertheless important. It is saying we are saved in his life, implying that it's not just a future reality that we're looking for, and it's not just something that we're looking to the past, his death upon the cross. It is something that we are experiencing now. We are being saved in, not just by, not just through, but in the life of Christ. This is what theologians sometimes refer to as the doctrine of union with Christ. How do we know that we have that future hope? Well, we know it because Jesus died for us on the cross, yes. But we also know it fundamentally because we are at present united with him. Now, I'm just going to tell you, this is one of the most difficult sections of the epistle to the Romans but it is nevertheless one of the most important. This doctrine of union with Christ is the essence of Christian salvation. When a person is justified by grace through faith, they have all of these benefits, but all of these benefits are guaranteed to us for one simple reason. In that moment of justification, we become united with him and he becomes united with us, which means that Christ's ultimate destiny becomes our ultimate destiny. And that's why we can have hope. This may be a difficult concept, and hopefully I'm going to be able to flesh it out for you. This may be a somewhat difficult concept for us to grasp, but I want you to understand that it is central to the Apostle Paul's teaching not just here in Romans, but throughout his epistles. In fact, Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, or in Jesus Christ, or in him, not by him or through him, but in him, no less than 164 times in his writings. Which tells us that this is a foundational theme for Paul. Now, when we talk about union with Christ, what do we talk about? Well, the Bible mentions three great unions, particularly in the New Testament. There is the union that is experienced between the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You do realize that as Christians, we are monotheistic. That is to say, we believe in one God. Uh, incidentally, this was one of the things that made Christians unique and Jews unique in the first century. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, people believed in many gods, a great panoply of gods. They had gods for everything, gods of the fields, gods of the weather. They had gods of the door hinges. They had gods of the compost pile. They had gods of everything. And as you know, Paul even encountered, when he went to Athens, a temple that was erected to an unknown god for fear that they may have missed one and they didn't want to upset him or her, and so they just erected one to the unknown god. They had all kinds of gods. 
The Jews were unique. In fact, they were often referred to as atheists because they only believed in one God. And Christians coming out of Judaism believed in one God. But what is unique about Christianity, and we believe it because it is taught in the Scripture, we believe that that one God, the one Godhead, is nevertheless three distinct persons. You understand that? Now, you understand that this does not mean that God sometimes shows up as the Father, and at other times He shows up as the Son, and at other times He shows up as the Holy Spirit, just the same God but just putting on different caps. You understand that that's not the case. If you think that, let me just disabuse you of that idea right now, because that was condemned as a heresy, and you don't want to be a heretic. No, we Christians believe that there is one God, but three distinct persons within the Godhead. There is a Father who is not the Son and who is not the Holy Spirit, and there is a Son who is not the Father and who is not the Holy Spirit. And there is God, the Holy Spirit, who is not the Son and who is not the Father, and yet they are all one God. Three in one, one in three, Trinity in unity, and unity in Trinity. Now, if you want me to explain that to you, good luck. <laughs> I can't explain it. Thomas Jefferson became very frustrated with it. He said, oh, Christians would be much better off. You know, he wasn't a Christian. He was a deist. He said, Christians would be much better off if they would just dispense with this troublesome arithmetic that one plus one plus one equals one. But nevertheless, we believe it. It is a mystery. This is one of the reasons why you'll notice in most churches on Trinity Sunday, the assistant always gets the task of preaching. <laughs> and I always tell the assistant, when you're assigned to preach on Trinity Sunday, don't explain it. Because if you try to explain it, you're going to venture off into some area where you shouldn't go. Don't explain it, just proclaim it. So as Christians, we believe in the Trinity. And one of the reasons we believe in, one of the reasons I believe in the Trinity is, who would make that sort of thing up? I mean, nobody would make that sort of thing up. It makes no sense in one sense. We believe it because it is revealed in Scripture. And it is a mystery as to how this is true. So that's one spiritual union that we encounter in Scripture. The other spiritual union that we encounter in Scripture, the second one, is the two natures of Christ, what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The idea that in Jesus Christ, you have one person, of course, but two natures. He is at the same time fully God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, by whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. Are you familiar with those words? You should be. You say them every Sunday, hopefully without crossing your fingers. So he is at one moment fully God, equal with the Father, equal with the Holy Spirit. But at the other, the other same time, he is also fully human. Fully human. As human as you and me. That's the great mystery of the incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about. That God took on human flesh. That's what John's gospel is all about. The prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And the word, by whom all things were made, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So Jesus is not 90% God and 10% human, or even 99% God and just 1% human, nor is he 50% human and 50% God. He is 100% God and 100% human. And you say, well, now how can that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. But we believe it. Why? Because the scripture teaches it. And at the same time, the church has declared it. Now, again, these are difficult doctrines for us to grasp. It took the church 400 years to figure out this idea of Christ being fully God and fully man. It would be finally fleshed out at the battle of, uh, at the, um, the great um, treaty, Council of Chalcedon in 451. So it would take 400 years from the time that Jesus died and was resurrected until the church was able to at least put words to this great doctrine. But nevertheless, this is what Christians believe. These are spiritual unions, and they are mysteries, but we believe them because they are revealed to us. Well, there is a third union that is analogous to the first two that is also taught in Scripture, and that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5. And that is the union of the believer with Christ. That when we are justified by grace through faith, we are united with Christ. He in us, and us in him. And our fate is forever linked to him from that moment forward. Your fate, if you are united with Christ, my fate, if I'm united with Christ, is forever linked to him. Now, Paul is the great theologian. He's the great didactic teacher. But you know, Paul was not teaching anything that was novel. Paul's whole job as an apostle was to proclaim the gospel of who? The gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing is simply teaching the same thing that Jesus taught. Now, Jesus was not the same kind of teacher as Paul. Paul taught in a more didactic way, the way that I teach, in a didactic way. Jesus didn't generally teach that way. His style was different. He generally presented analogies. He talked in parables. He told stories. He gave you a picture rather than a description. And sometimes pictures are far more valuable. When you see a picture of something, ah, now I can see what you're talking about. But Jesus talked about this same idea of being united with him as being the essence of salvation. Let me just show you a couple of the things that Jesus did, and then we'll come back to Paul. So keep your finger there in Romans and turn to John chapter 15 for just a moment. This is a familiar section of the fourth gospel. And Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of this idea of being united to him. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There it is. That's the justification. You're clean. Your sins have been washed away by the sacrifice, which you have received by faith. Abide in me. That's the critical term. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So Jesus is saying that that's the way it works. You and I become united to him like branches to a vine. The branch, unless it is connected to the vine, cannot what? Produce fruit. In fact, it can only, not only produce fruit, apart from the vine, it dies. It withers. It, it perishes. So that's a picture Jesus is giving us of salvation. Now, we actually use this same language of union with Christ, abiding in him as the vine abides in the branch every time we have communion. The last prayer that we pray prior to coming forward to receive the sacrament of the bread and the wine goes like this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son Jesus Christ and to drink his blood that we may evermore, what? Dwell in him and he in us. What do you think, Jesus... As a, as a continuous remembrance of his sacrifice, gave us something that we ingest. He could have just given us something as a symbol that you hang on the wall. But he gave us two elements that we ingest, bread and wine, because once you ingest them, they what? Become part of you. And so that's the idea. We want to dwell in him. We want him to dwell in us so that the two become supernaturally, spiritually linked. And that is the essence of salvation. And Paul will take this theme and he'll unpack it in other places. He'll use different analogies. He'll talk about the foundation of the building and a structure. The structure cannot survive what? without the foundation. If the foundation is removed, what happens to the superstructure? It collapses. He uses the analogy of a head and body. This is one of Paul's favorites. That the body cannot survive what? Without the head. We are the body. Christ is the head. You cut the head off a body, what happens to the rest of it? It withers and perishes. It's been said that if the head be well, the body be well. Christ is the head. We are the body, the various limbs. And I think perhaps the most powerful and perhaps the most helpful of all the analogies that Paul uses for the essence of salvation is this picture of a marriage. It's the picture of a marriage. What happens when a man and a woman are married? Keep your finger there in Romans 
and go to Ephesians. We're going to look at verses 22 through 28 and then skip to verse 32. Now Paul's giving practical advice here to the church. He's telling us how we are supposed to conduct our family lives. Um, he talks about children and parents, wives and husbands. Some of this language will probably make 21st century people squirm a bit. But if you listen closely, you'll understand what Paul is really saying. So he begins, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 32, this mystery, we've just been talking about mysteries. This mystery is a profound one, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what Paul's really getting at. You know, you know that the Bible says that God hates divorce. Now, that doesn't mean that God hates divorced people. And it doesn't mean that divorce is sometimes unavoidable. It is sometimes unavoidable. If your woman is living with an abusive man and he's beating her up day in and day out, am I, is she expected to stay with him no matter what? No. And there are plenty of other passages in Scripture that would justify her having to leave him, especially if her children or so forth are in danger. So we're not saying that it's, it's like that. But what we are saying is that it grieves God whenever a marriage fails. Why? Because a marriage, that union between husband and wife, is actually a picture of the kind of relationship that Christ has with his church. And when a marriage falters, this great opportunity to bear witness to Christ's relationship to his church is lost. That's why Paul says at the end, when he gets through all of that advice, wives submit to your husbands in all things. Every man wants to get that painted on the wall in the bedroom. Wives submit to your husbands in all things. And of course, he balances that out by saying, and husbands, you are to love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for it. But then in the end, he gets to the end and he says, it's not just about men and women. This is about what? Christ and the church. This picture of mutual sacrifice. This picture of the two becoming one. Isn't that what we say in the marriage service? We get to the very end and we say, those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So it's this idea of being united with Christ as the vine to the branches, as the body to the head, as the superstructure to the foundation, and as the husband is united to the wife and the wife is 
united to the husband in a relationship that is a mysterious union that man has no right to separate, a relationship of mutual sacrifice in which he gives for her and she gives to him. That is the picture of salvation. That is the picture of what it means to be a Christian. It means to be united to Jesus Christ in that way. In a way that nothing can ever separate you. In a way that no man can put asunder. There may be somebody out there today who's never been married. But if you're a Christian, I want to suggest to you that you have been married. You have been married to Jesus Christ. This is a very powerful analogy, and I want to come back to it. Every time I do a wedding, I will ask the man and the woman a series of questions. This is the most important. I will say, Mary, will you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And she will say, hopefully, I will. I'll say the same thing then to him or to her. I'll say, Mary, will you have, or John, will you have this woman to be your wife? to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And hopefully he will say, I will. At this point, they will then proceed to make their vows. Here's how the vows go. In the name of God, I, John, take you, Mary, to be my wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. She will then say the same thing. In the name of God, I, Mary, take you, John, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. You cannot be a Christian without being united to Jesus Christ. That is the essence of salvation. That is what it means to be a Christian. It means that he dwells in you and you dwell in him. And if you've ever wondered, am I really a Christian, ask the question, have I been united to him? Because what Jesus Christ has said, and this is what Paul is teaching us here, what Jesus Christ has said by his death upon the cross and by his resurrection, by this offer of free salvation by which you and I can have peace with God and begin to experience the peace of God, what Jesus Christ has said is this. I, Jesus Christ, take you, Jeff Miller, to be my disciple, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish 
until by death you come to be with me. This is my solemn vow. And the only way you know you are a Christian is if you have said those vows back to him. In the name of God, I, Jeff Miller, take you, Jesus Christ, to be my Lord and my Savior, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until by death I come to be with you. This is my solemn vow. Have you experienced that? Have you been united with Christ? Listen, this is not just something for the future. It's not just something that happened in the past. It is something for the present. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not just to say the words, it is to mean them. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I don't understand all the implications of that. What bride, what groom on their wedding day understands the implications of it? We say those words in good faith, don't we? We say them with the help of God. We say them with the best intentions. By God's grace, this is how I'm going to live my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to get your ticket punch and go to heaven when you die. Oh, that's a great benefit. But Paul understood that the great message of salvation is to be united with Christ. He'd been separated from Christ. He'd been at war with Christ. And Christ has come and made this wonderful vow and promise to him by his death upon the cross, by his resurrection, by his ascension. And he's saying, I want you to be mine forever. Have you said those vows back to Jesus? That's the essence of salvation. That's the essence of Christianity. The idea of a marriage. So it's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. Now, Paul goes on to explain, going back to Romans chapter 5, that you can't truly appreciate the benefits of this marriage, this new status that we have in Christ, until we realize that until now we have been what? United to another. And it's only when we realize that we've been united to another, one who is a cruel taskmaster, that we can truly appreciate the new relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, that's sometimes the way it is. A woman will marry a man, and he will be cruel. Maybe not physically abusive, but certainly emotionally and verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive, unfortunately. But he can really run her down. And she sticks with him for any number of reasons. Maybe she sticks with him because of the kids. Maybe she sticks with him for financial reasons. But eventually he dies. And she's fearful of ever going with another man because that was such a, a terrible relationship. But eventually she meets somebody and she marries this man and he is a kind, generous, loving individual. Do you think she's going to appreciate that relationship all the more based upon the fact that she didn't have it to begin with? You better believe it. 
She's going to so appreciate this new relationship and so appreciate this new husband because she knows what it's like to be with one who is not so loving and so kind. Well, that's what Paul is saying. We are united with Christ when we become Christians, but until we are united with Christ, we have actually been what? United to another. And having been united to this other, the relationship has not always been positive, kind, or happy. Who is it that we have been united with? Well, he says, we have been united with Adam. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam and who was a type of the one who was to come. But, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is what theologians commonly refer to as federal theology. And we've talked about this in here before, this notion of federal theology. As Americans, because of our system of government, we know how this works. A federal system is where you elect representatives who act on your behalf. So we are getting ready to have some midterm elections. I suspect it's going to be a heavy voting. Apparently down in Georgia, they have had a greater turnout than in previous presidential elections. People are very interested. They're very animated because they understand what? That whoever they vote into office is going to affect their life. The decisions that those people make for them will affect their life. So, if you vote in representatives in Congress who decide to raise your taxes, is that going to affect your life? You better believe it. If they decide to lower your taxes, is that going to affect your life? Absolutely. So we understand how this works. Well, the scripture teaches that there is a federal kind of relationship when it comes to human beings. We are either in union with Adam, and when we're talking about Adam, we're talking about not just the first man, but, but humanity as a whole, or we are in union with Christ. But we're bound to one or the other. And the decisions of each affect us. So, Adam was the first man. Adam was the perfect man. He was the representative man. When I imagine God creating the first man and the first woman, however he did that, uh, I imagine a perfect individual. One who had never sinned but was totally free. Totally free. He could choose to follow God or he could choose to follow his own way. You understand that that's the only way that love is possible, is if you have choice. But Adam, as we all know, chose to do what? Follow his own path. 
He wanted to be like God. He wasn't satisfied with playing second fiddle, being God's regent over the creation. He wanted to be the master of his own fate, the captain of his own destiny. And so he took of the fruit and he ate it. And when he did, he fell. But here's the important point. When he fell, all of his progeny fell as well. Why? Because he represented them. Now you say to yourself, well, I don't like that idea. Well, I understand that. I don't particularly like it either. Because we assume, and I might say we falsely assume, we assume that if it had been us, we'd have done better than Adam did. The reality is there's no guarantee of that. If Adam was perfect, if Adam walked with God, and if Adam fell, what makes us think that we wouldn't have done the same thing? And by the way, that's the way it works. The decisions that you make will affect your children, won't they? We see this all the time, where the innocent suffer. A mother who uses drugs or uses alcohol can pass that on, fetal alcohol syndrome, to her what? To her child. Did the child do anything? No. But the child is united to the mother. And the decisions or the actions of the mother inevitably, like it or not, affect the child. Well, that is what the Bible teaches about us. You and I are in Adam, and the decisions that Adam made affect us. So when he fell, the whole race fell. And the consequences of the fall not only affected him, they affected his progeny right on down to the present day. How do we know that? We know it for two reasons in particular. This is, this is verifiable. We know it for two reasons. One, we know it because of the universality of sin. Every human being is a sinner. What accounts for that? And the other reason we know it is because of the universal fear of death. Now, you may say as a Christian, I'm not afraid to die. You're speaking as a Christian. But there is this universal fear within humanity of death. We rage, rage. Isn't that what the poet says? Rage against the dying of the light. There is this universal fear of death. There's this universal sense of sin. Where does that come from? What explains that? The fall of Adam explains that. Because we're all in Adam. The consequences of his action affect us. Adam is responsible, and as a consequence, we are all, as you've heard me say before, OS positive. We're all original sin positive. Thanks, Adam. We appreciate that. I'll never forget my son Jackson on one occasion was really sick. He had a terrible stomach bug. You know that's always the worst. And um, he had just been in the bathroom, and he came out, and he was only about seven years old, and he looked up at me, and he said, I hate Adam. <laughs> now, whether or not he was sick because of Adam, I don't know, but the reality is that's the way he looked at it through his eyes. At the very least, he understood federal theology and how it works. We are in Adam, every single one of us. And that word Adam is not just a proper name. Adam means mankind. We are in mankind. And whatever afflicts mankind afflicts us. When Adam fell, we all fell. It's like a mountain climber going up the mountain, and they're all tethered together. But if one falls, what? They all fall. 
But now Paul says, we are united to a new Adam. That's how Jesus Christ is described. The new Adam who does what the first Adam was incapable of doing. And just as we have been united in the first Adam with all the consequences of his actions, now we are united with Christ. We've been married to him. And that means that all that Christ is capable of doing, we benefit from. You see why Paul says that's the essence of salvation? We're no longer united to Adam with all the consequences of his actions. We are now united forever to Christ, deriving all the benefits of his action. How do we become united with Christ? Well, it's what Paul's been talking about here. It happens through justification by grace through faith, which results in a what? A new birth. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. I don't understand this. I don't understand this idea of a spiritual union. I don't understand how. Jesus said, well, you're supposed to be the theologian. You're Israel's teacher. What do you mean you don't understand these things? You have to be reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say a quick word about that phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many people assume that baptism of the Holy Spirit is this sort of ability to speak in tongues or to do supernatural acts. That is not actually what the New Testament teaches. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be baptized or immersed into the life of Christ. In the early days of the church, you know they didn't sprinkle babies. We've talked about this before. They did what? They immersed. Most people were adults. Now, that's not to say that infants were not baptized. I think there are passages in the New Testament that are clearly indicators that, yes, infants were baptized. But baptism in those early days was by immersion. You were dunked. And the reason you were dunked was that going beneath the water symbolized you were dying and coming up out of the water symbolized what? Resurrection. The old has passed away, you become a new creation. You have died to sin, and you are now alive in Christ. You are alive in Christ. So, how do you become united with Christ? Through the new birth, whereby you die to sin. Your old master, your old husband is gone, as it were, and you are now united to this new husband for eternity, who is Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can says, therefore, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, nothing in all of creation. And that's what Paul is really fleshing out here in these verses 15 through 17. He says, our union with Christ is greater than our union with Adam. Oh, it's true, our union with Adam had dire consequences, and we live with them every single day. But he says, understand that now you've been united with Christ. This union is greater than that old union. It, it, it superimposes itself on that and obliterates it. Union with Adam does what? It brings death. Union with Christ brings what? Life. Eternal life. As in Adam all die, so in Christ... All shall be made alive. Union with Adam brings condemnation. We are under the judgment of God. We are enemies of God. Union with Christ brings what? Vindication. 
you do understand that we are all going to be judged. You do understand that. We say that every Sunday. And we believe that he will come again to judge what? The quick and the dead. Who are the quick? Us. The quick. The alive. The living. I know you're thinking, well, that's like, you know, trying to cross Calhoun Street these days. There are the quick and there are the dead. But <laughs> the quick are those who are living. And he's going to judge those who are living, and he's going to judge those who are dead. Notice we don't say he's going to judge those who are not Christians, who are living and who are dead. He's going to judge everybody. We're all going to be judged. The books are going to be opened. It's all going to be laid bare, and we're going to all be judged. But here's the difference. For those who are in Adam, it is a day of condemnation. God is going to render justice. They're going to get what they deserve. You know, sometimes people say, I just want what I deserve. No, you don't. <laughs> Believe me, you do not want what you deserve. God is going to render justice and we want justice. Let's be honest. You want to know that all the wicked, terrible things that have been done down through history by evil and wicked men and women, and there have been some really heinous things. The abuse of a child, for example. The murder of a child. All the terrible things. You want a God of justice. But for those who are in Adam, they're going to get justice. They're going to get what they deserve. For those who are in Christ, however, it's going to be a day of vindication. God is going to look and he's going to say, a great debt. You owe a great debt. But I see that you are in Christ. Your debt has been paid. And for them, the day of judgment will be a day of vindication. You know, if somebody is accused of a crime and they go through a trial and they are found innocent by the jury, that's not a day of condemnation. That's a day of vindication. This union with Christ is greater than this union with Adam because on the day of judgment, what will bring some condemnation will bring to others vindication. And finally, while union with Adam brings death, union with Christ brings a reign. We actually will reign with Christ. It's not just that we get to go to heaven. We actually become sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we reign over creation. God is going to make a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. You and I are going to be given a special place in that. We will reign over the angels, kings and queens forever. And why is that? Because we are united with him who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, who has no beginning and who has no end, and we are united with him for all eternity. Have you said your vows? Have you come to Jesus Christ? He's made a tremendous vow to you. He's going to love you and cherish you from now through eternity. Have you returned those vows to him? Have you been united with him forever? That's the essence of Christianity. That's what it means to be a follower. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for this powerful teaching by the Apostle Paul. We thank you that we are not simply saved by Jesus' life or through his life, although that is true. We thank you that we are not merely saved by his death or through his death, although that is true. We thank you that we are saved in Christ Jesus, that we are united to him, that he dwells in us and we in him, not just for a time, not just for a season, but for eternity, and that our destiny is secure and that nothing, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.